0: The fund did well. A couple of unicorns came out of it. It went from a small, two hundred fifty thousand dollar fund to three million dollar fund. And of course, you know, overall, a good quality startups came out.
1: This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action, with host Arman Shraki. Each week, Arman will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve A, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm here with Andos Katan. We had a very nice discussion just before we start the recording, and I'm pretty sure that this would be a great discussion for everyone as well. Indos, please tell us about yourself a little bit. What's the story?
0: I know that you have a fascinating background. Thanks for having me. I'm a tech entrepreneur. I grew up in a mining town in India and got a college degree and came to Silicon Valley chasing the you know, the proverbial great American dream and started a couple of companies sold one to Oracle, raised a small family. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay, people know the geography. And now I am the founder of a company called Quolum, where we help other companies save money on buying and renewing SaaS products. We help reduce SaaS waste, remove financial and operational drudgery, and optimize the stack of software products that any company has.
2: I wonder, you know, how did you come up with that idea? There was a day that you got up and said today I'm going to start this company. And in order to get there, you have gone through a number of thoughts, processes, things, thinkings, backgrounds, maybe seeing the problem. In particular, is there anything that initiated that move?
0: I think there were there were layers of thought process. The final nail in the coffin for hey let's do something on this was i was working for a company called chargebee you know before i started this and we grew very rapidly in a short amount of time and during that time i saw the explosion and adoption of saas within the within the group that i was part of and and as and at large within the company and when i was talking to folks the feedback I got, hey, there is no easy way to manage how many products we have. It was all millions of dollars being uh, invested, products being bought. Nobody knew who's using it. Nobody knew who paid for it. It was my credit card on file on many of these applications. And you know, the thought was there must be an easy way to solve it rather than spreadsheets and emails. And that was the final nail in the coffin to do something about it. But You know the seeds were sown many many years ago. I'm an enterprise product guy. You know built products for the back office and saw up close how processes and systems in larger companies you know make the life easier for the buyer of these tools and of course for the sellers. But in contrast, for SaaS there was nothing close that could you know have a workflow around it. So quit Chargebee in in summer of 2019 and thought, hey. Let's solve the problem without exactly knowing what the solution should be.
2: You know, there are different school of thoughts. We both live in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, of course. One idea here that is popular is that you go and sketch something on a whiteboard or you put together some slides and then you go and just meet with some investors and different type of investors in all shapes and forms you get some seed funding you go forward you get more funding more funding and then you essentially bring that power with regard to the funding to make things happen in a big way quick rapid bigger than anybody else in the market and you outcompete the competition because you're faster you are better stronger more money and everything and then you win the market that's one way to go and then there is a big risk there but it's high speed race there's another school of thought that is, hey, I'm going to just understand exactly what the problem is, and it takes time, and I need to spend the time, many, many years. Maybe the investors are not patient enough to be with me. I need to do it in a way that is not pressure on me to go fast. It's not a, a speed at that point kind of you know race. I wanted to really go and uh, spend time, understand the problem, understand the solution, test it out, make sure it's working, And then I'm ready in order to go faster. And during that time, I need to just focus and do it in a totally different mode and different style. Some people would say at any point, anyway, I don't want to raise money. I just wanted to build a business as an entrepreneur, make it sustainable, make it profitable, make it in a way that it works for customers. And then I'm not in rush. If it takes 10, 15, 20 years, I will take the time. I just enjoy Doing it in a very organic growth rather than just being pushed on a timetable with some investors who might be in rush or maybe have some other agenda or I don't know. But that's the way I wanted to build it. Very sustainable, very organic. I wouldn't use the lifestyle business because that comes with a negative connotation. But it's really that style. What is your take after all of these experiences that you have had and what's this style that you will adopt to move forward?
0: I think a great question and and a great observation on the market, so I think if you if you parse down like you know as a branching tree at at the top as an entrepreneur, you're starting a business, so at the top level, you have to see, hey, am I going to bootstrap it or this is a venture ready business you know bootstrap, run it as a lifestyle, or maybe get funding three four or year, five years down the road. I think that decision point not easy, but could be made depending on who you are as a person. So if you have money stocked away, you can bootstrap, right? And that's the path you take. In venture ready or a venture scale business, I think you you as a founder, I as a founder, I look for what is the product that I'm building? Am I going into commoditized markets? You know, a great example is a CRM, an email outreach tool, a marketing automation or a social media monitoring product, a customer service management infrastructure. If I'm building in a commoditized market, many times what happens, we think, hey, we need a lot of money. We're going to get bigger faster because there are other hundreds of players in the commoditized market. And that becomes a thesis that become short-lived in many cases because you know customers already know the solution. You throw money at the problem to acquire them and it kind of rapid burning may not get into a product market fit. And when I say product market fit, that you know the category, let's say you know CRM, but you still have to have a niche why customer is going to buy your product rather than a competition or maybe you have it cheaper, maybe you have a unique angle. So that is one. If you're building in a commoditized market, you need to have that much capital but still the trajectory is in question the second one is are you creating a new category of products the problem that i see in in venture capital business both of these get conflated investors depending on their agenda they will force you to go to market raise money faster do one round after the other without proving your thesis irrespective of whether it's commoditized markets or newer categories 100% in newer categories you cannot put money at the problem you have to iterate you have to experiment you have to talk to customers you have to build it out have a product market fit then only you can say oh i am ready to scale i have quarter million to half million in revenue and let's go put some more money as a jet fuel and this is where most of the time we see in the valley that Companies have not been built sustainably. And this is what's happening today. You know, companies raise a lot of money in the last two years. They're going to do a down round. They're going to do layoffs. And it hurts. It hurts the employees. It hurts the cap table. It hurts the customers. Not a sustainable way to build a business. So you're right. I mean, there
2: are many different dimensions, of course, right? So as you said, there are many questions to ask before even understand if there are these options available to you or not. Because sometimes there is no option. Sometimes there are multiple options. Sometimes it's so obvious that this is the best option. Sometimes it's not that obvious. All of the options look great, and then you would never know which would have worked best. You just pick one and go with it. But if I come to you today and say, hey, you know, I wanted to start this business that this is a SaaS business, meaning that I need to add more subscription to it It's not going to be huge chunk of money coming to me. It's going to be probably subscriptions add up, but takes time to get to the point that I have enough revenue. And then I don't really want to necessarily be in a situation that to really get into that race too fast, because I know I need time. And at the beginning of any SaaS company, things are very slow, as you know, as I know. You know, the slowest time is the first few years. After that, everything is getting easier, better every year. But the difficulty, the most difficult part, is just to get the first maybe million dollar of ARR. And at the beginning, when you are very, very small and move forward, what is the option at that point? If entrepreneur understands all of these challenges, knows that is not the best option to really go and bring an investor because then everything else will be really, you know, pushed and getting into a timetable that may not work well. But what is the option? That's, I think, the dilemma for most of the founders that when they start, they don't see any other option, even if they know it's not the best option. So they have to go and just talk to VCs. And it's not good, not just for entrepreneurs, it's not even the best time for institutional investors, right? Because they have to wait also. You know, it takes longer as well. So what is the remedy that you see for those founders if they come to you and say, okay, just give us some advice?
0: I think the first question I always ask is, you know, what are you building? Hinging to my earlier thought, are you building something which is new? Of course, as you said, you have to nurture that, experiment for at least a couple of years. You don't know whether there are buyers of the product. You don't know, even if there are buyers, are they ready to pay for it? And if they pay for it, is it enough to become a gross margin of SaaS kind of a business in a longer term? And the mistake most of the time founders make is exactly opposite. You know, They think their business is venture ready. You know, They have product market fit in month three or month four. They got 10 customers who are their friends or extended family. It's a wrong product market fit. And and that's the mistake companies make. They raise money too quickly from investors who are series A, as you would call it, or institutional investors. Institutional investors are going to put the founder on a timeline saying, oh, you took $15 million from this particular VC. Now show me the revenue growth. Show me traction. But behind the scenes, if the business is not ready to show traction, you had not had product market fit, what you are going to do, you're going to acquire false product market fit, which is let's acquire customers on performance marketing, put it on LinkedIn, put it on Google ads. You'll get some customers, you'll get some traction, but again, maybe the wrong set. They will churn after six months, even more problem at stake. So the advice I would give founders: figure out what you're building. Is it a better banana, or a better apple, or a banana to an apple? As it you have a differentiated product. Second, don't talk to just the 10 customers who are in your network. You know, do a LinkedIn cold outreach to people who are in your second degree. You know, LinkedIn is a fantastic tool. Who are not connected to you, who will give you the middle finger because they don't know you. That is the feedback you're looking for. To give you our example as Colum, we started you know, late 2019. We thought we will build a SaaS management tool. But six months in the experimentation cycle, we figured out, yes, there were buyers of the product, but they would not log into our application more than once every quarter. And that gave us a hard burn because, yes, there is utility, but there is no usage. And we went back to the drawing board thinking, hey, what can we build that brings the user to the product every day? We added a fintech arm to the product. We went back to the drawing board, rebuild it, or added that in 12 to 18 months and launched the product again in late summer of last year. And that's when we got traction. And during that two years, we operated the company very, very conservatively, you know, not trying to burn cash on anything which is not not related to product. And now we have a PMF. We just got two sales guys on board. We have a growth marketer on board and we're ready to scale. That's the journey I would recommend following.
2: Yeah, I understand. Now, with regard to any SaaS company, when they are starting this business, of course, the best way is to start with maybe some customers. One of the approaches that I'm a big fan of is starting to sell the vision, not to investors necessarily, but to some customers. And if someone is really paying for that and signing up, meaning that I will pre-pay for that service. I know it's not available yet, but based on your proof of concept, prototype, slides, I'm going to pay for this a little bit and pre-subscribe. So when it's coming, am um, getting a very highly discounted kind of service for the first year, maybe. That approach, it just confirms the vision is correct because somebody, even small, may be paying a $1,000 check. But that payment, it's just a vote of confidence, even if it's a small. And then if you can explain that and somebody understands and write that $1,000 check and say, this is yours, six months from now, one year from now, when your service is ready, I will get a one-year subscription for that and it's highly discounted. Then there's less risk there, right? So you have signed up five people, 10 people, and then you know this is a need because otherwise those people would not have written that check. Sometimes there's a false positive that it's kind of you go there and say it's a good idea. They say, yes, it's a great idea, but then you build it. There's nobody wanted to pay for it, right? So it's more like it's a good idea, but it doesn't mean it's practical. Doesn't mean it's you know someone I would pay for. Doesn't mean I'm a real customer for it. So that that approach can can make it more probably you know to the point that you say that really building something that people are willing to see and it is not difficult to build that proof of concept and something that you know you can put together quickly rather than you know going through that. Would you agree? I mean, this is the approach that you think that you think it would work in many cases, or there's, there are some flaws to this idea?
0: Agree in the large part. I think the crux is, as you mentioned, Aman, is who are these first 10 customers? If these first 10 customers are your friends, or let's say recommendations by your seed investors, you know, people are nice. They don't want you to fail they will not say no to you if they know you already and if these are the first 10 customers it is very likely and to your point arman it could misguide you it could give you a false product market fit the nuance there is get the first 10 customers who are not your friends who are not your acquaintances you know who are in some second degree and the first 10 customers came via Hundreds of outreach messages you sent, not like an easy, you know, 10 that came on your your bucket. Maybe a few are your friends, you know, out of 10, maybe one or two to help you, you know, build the product. But you want the majority, like 60 to 70 percent who are not known to you, who are there because of what you are building rather than who you are as an individual. So 100 percent agree with you here. Just a small nuance in terms of who the first 10 are. Yeah, make
2: perfect sense. Sometimes I think that the market, the SaaS market, is influenced too much by investors. And it what is I by that. It is okay. Any comment on that?
0: It is because in the last five years, what has happened is people have woken up or been aware of the fact that how fast SaaS compounds, you know, you take a dollar today, $2 tomorrow, $4 and $8, it just, you know, rapidly, a 1 million revenue could go to 70 million, 60 to 70 million, just by the laws of compounding, right? And hence, SaaS has become a, you know, pretty much a favorite destination for deploying capital, not just in private markets. If you look at public markets, you know, likes of Snowflake, Okta, you know, Datadog, Zoom. The reason these companies have hundreds of billions of dollars in valuation because public market investors have also woken up that, hey, I don't need a dividend paying 15% every month company. I need a compounding dividend paying 15 to 20 to 30 to 40. And that's the beauty of SaaS and agree to your point, and that is influencing the behavior that you just mentioned about.
2: Yeah, because sometimes, for example, you see that we make a big deal of these companies named Unicorn. And if you look at what Unicorn is, it's not really that unicorn, right? Because you can be a very good presenter, and you can get in front of a very good investor with deep pocket, and then you can ask for some money, even if you have no revenue. And then as soon as they put $100 based on $1 billion valuation, hey, next day you are a unicorn, as easy as that. Now, the difficult part is to deliver that. The difficult part is to bring customers, sign up customers, they pay, they don't churn, they love it, they like it, you make them successful, you bring value to customers. And then, in my opinion, that revenue that you bring from customers should make you a unicorn, right? So if you get to that revenue, right, $100 million revenue, then you have done something great. But if you get $100 million investment based on some promises that you don't know if it will it will be doable or not. So rather than we magnify and we really, you know, put that $100 million from customers Kind of, you know, that is what's important. We magnify.
0: Yeah, we, we celebrate funding than anything else. Agree to you. Agree. I think we are celebrating the wrong metric. We, we are celebrating unicorn valuations as if the company has already won the war and won the customers and distributed wealth to everybody who was involved, from team to, to investors, you know, to to early founders, which in my mind... You know, if we look at when uh, the term unicorn was coined, to your point, it made sense back then because, you know, the, the craziness was not there. And it was a matter of celebration that, look, in a nascent industry as tech, there are companies with billion dollar valuations. It, it was a moment of celebration back then. But then what has happened is the tech neighborhood became dirty, that everybody wanted to crave a unicorn valuation. And all sorts of financial engineering is done, which we have not talked about, to achieve quote unquote a unicorn status. And to your point, if I'm a customer, what does the unicorn status give me? Nothing. It does not give me product. It does not give me better pricing. It just gives me media impressions that you know um, the tech uh, publications are writing about so more celebration of unicorn valuation than hey how much revenue did you make how many customers do you have are your employees happy we did not celebrate that
2: so within that kind of journey right so you go through and as you said the right celebration so if you receive funding necessarily it's not good news or bad news in my view for founders it can be bad news. It can be good news because it's a milestone. Yeah, because it's the milestone. But you, you still don't know if you should, you know, celebrate it or not until you actually deploy that investment, and then you see that you can actually create two dollar value out of one dollar, and then that customer come back and say, "I'm happier." Now you're building a better product. Now the team is more successful, now you have a great team, great product, great customer base. And at that point, then you can celebrate and say, I deployed and I used this investment in the right way. But what if that investment actually led you to spend more for no good reason? What if it led you to take some options that would not have been good options and you would not have taken probably if you didn't have money and you built the wrong product just because you had the money and and those kind of things. And after four years, five years, you come back and say actually didn't do well for me that investment. And actually my valuation is now down rather than moving up and I'm not providing more value. I'm providing less value to my customer base. So, so definitely raising investment doesn't need that celebration from founders perspective, but adding customers would be a great, reason and excuse to have a celebration i mean if you are adding happy customers and successful customers that is something to celebrate is it the same perspective you would share
0: i think same perspective i'll give you one anecdote so as a kid growing up in india i remember a neighborhood bridge over a small river was being built supposed to be built how i found out all these details is one fine day, we found out, hey, the, the bridge is not going to get built. As in why? Because the person who took the debt from a bank, a local bank to build the bridge, ran out of money and the bridge is not going to get built. He was awarded a tender and that's what's called in India when somebody wins a contract, a tender is awarded to that person and the company could not build the bridge. There was no celebration before that, that, hey, he was awarded a tender or he got a line of debt or credit from the bank to build the bridge, nothing like that. The only celebration that was supposed to happen when the bridge was being opened for public, did happen, right? So as a customer, the bridge did not get delivered to me and hence I found out. So if you equate that to venture capital, Venture capital is nothing but, it's technically not a debt as a financial instrument, but we equate that. I am borrowing money from someone to build a business and my job as an entrepreneur is to deliver that business to my customers and hopefully in the process, return that debt in multiples back to the investors and you know participate in that win. What is happening is we are celebrating that I received that debt to build the business. And in my mind, that's wrong. Yes, it's a milestone. You need that money to build the business because, of course, you know, tech, you invest $3 ahead of time to get a dollar. And then, of course, that diminishes over a period of time. You become self-sustaining and profitable.
2: That was a good kind of a story and metaphor, actually. <laughs> it, having the bridge requires... <laughs> It, it needs that celebration, but not announcing that we got the money to start building the bridge that I still don't know if that would be a liability or that would be really a positive development. So interesting. Is there any particular maybe habit, maybe a particular event or something that you have seen, you have experienced and you would say, you know what, that helped my business, that helped me to be a better Kind of because this particular event or because of these particular habits or this particular gathering or, you know, a group that I'm involved in that really helped me to grow my business or at least better understand how to do business or be a better founder entrepreneur or make a better SaaS company that has helped me to get that you can share with the audience? As simple as possible, it might be a particular habit that you you know, you know, had, or it can be group or event. Is there anything?
0: I think that was a pretty interesting event in my life as a journey, as a career professional in tech. In 2008, 2009, I went back to India. Of course, it was a series of unfortunate, fortunate events. The housing bubble had burst, stock market had collapsed. I had started a business, ran out of money, and got a one-way ticket back to India. Now, in India, I got lucky with a couple of other co-founders. We started a seed fund. It was called The Morpheus, and it was very much like a Y Combinator clone of its first kind in India. Creating that fund gave me an opportunity to see venture capital from the other side. You know, as a founder, you always have a jaded perspective that, hey, investors not giving me money, you know, venture capital is for the privileged. If you are from, you know, Dropbox, Stripe today, or Google or Facebook or Stanford or Harvard, you can get capital. Other founders don't get easy access to capital. When I went on the other side, which probably is also called the dark side of the entrepreneurship, it gave me a you know ringside view of what exactly happens behind the scenes you know how these funds are run who the investor chooses or picks to invest money on on a startup what are they looking for in the entrepreneur what are they looking for in idea that two years was like somebody putting my feet on fire as an entrepreneur saying oh you got to learn this you rookie and that was basically transforming for me as an individual and made me a better entrepreneur that I am today and a better judge of people. My ability to judge and gauge the intent of individuals went up probably 100x in just two years' timeframe. Amazing. <laughs> and, and luckily, the, the fund did well. A couple of unicorns came out of it. It went from a small... 250 thousand dollar fund to 3 million dollar fund and of course you know overall a good quality startups came out it also made me known in the indian startup ecosystem uh, when i moved back to india i did not know anyone and i built a network you know you know got publicity for the fund and of course left two years after that i was not ready to become a vc i am still an operator and a builder so came out and did another startup but those two years were very defining for my life
2: and why is that? You know that it's easier and faster and quicker and financially more rewarding if you let your money work for you, rather than you start taking all of these risks and up and downs as a founder. And it takes longer time to really build something. But still you chose, and I did the same, I chose to build something. Why is that? why why you are really just you know get up in the morning and you say i want to build something and i'm not saying one is the better than the other it's just two different things and both of them are valuable and i you know i understand that but i wonder why is that why you strive for that kind of you know going and building something and that's what energizes you
0: it's how i am built and i can think about others as well who are entrepreneurs it's something within you as as an individual. It, if I could give an analogy, it is like, you know, a few men or a group of people would want to go on war. You know, if you take back, you know, thousands of years ago in, you know, 1,000 AD or, you know, 10 centuries ago, a group of people would want to go on war, say, yep, I am ready. I'm going to go, you know, go fight the enemy, you know, most likely win the battle and come back whereas where a group of people say no i am good at farming i'm good at preserving my family i'm good at supporting the men and the women who are serving the country and are at war so as an individual we are wired to behave in a certain way are you the person who can go to war and live with the uncertainty and maybe die and never come back home or Are you the one who will preserve the history and nurture the men who have gone to war? I think I am of the war kind, and many of those entrepreneurs are war kind. They like the fact that there is uncertainty every day. They like the fact that, hey, there is pride and joy and a larger celebration of protecting and winning and coming back home, or the thrill or the rush around it. And, uh, you know, At the same time, taking risks, of course, you know, people who are preserving, they are also taking risks, they are experimenting, but I'm just giving a broader thesis of experimentation and and broader risk taking, knowing that we are putting our families at jeopardy. If I, you know, not become successful, I'm going to lose my time, lose the opportunity, put my family at jeopardy, may not be able to have money to send my kids to college and many other things that could go wrong. So we are ready to take that risk. I think that's what wired in us.
2: I would like to ask you as my last question, if you have any blog posts that you follow and you read regularly and it has been impactful, positively on what you do or any book or, you know, something that again, you would like to share with the audience.
0: I I read a lot. I follow a lot of blog posts. I listen to many podcasts. I'm a general reader of the history, either the history of business, you know, history of technology or human innovation, whether it's the history of, let's say uh, building Brooklyn Bridge, you know, or the Wright brothers inventing airplanes, or Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak creating Apple. I think that's my genre. biographies of people who have you know struggled and created something which now as a society, we can cherish right now i'm rereading andy groves only the paranoid survive uh, it's actually a book right on my desk i just started uh, like a week ago uh, i've read this at least two or three times uh, rereading this only the paranoid survive and he, he classically chronicles the time and tribulations of intel you know from uh, going from memory chip maker to you know the the cpu driven compute driven infrastructure that intel created just amazing I follow a lot of uh, blogs. I also follow a lot of podcasts. I'm an aviator, so I like to fly a single engine Cessna, so follow some of the aviation blogs and and podcasts. A podcast which is getting very popular and very f- uh, favorite of a lot of people is Invest Like the Best by Patrick O'Shaughnessy, if I pronounced his last name right. He's brought in in a phenomenal set of guests on the podcast and, and absolutely love to hear it when new episodes come out.
2: Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. Thanks again for joining us. And I look forward to speaking with you again and keep in touch.
0: Thanks, Arman. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend.
1: Thank you for listening to SAS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sassscaled.com if you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve a, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.